Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. By paying to protect forests abroad, the United States could help meet its greenhouse gas goals at home. But not all forests or all trees are created equal. Forests in tropical regions store four times the carbon of a tree plantation. So when you destroy a natural forest and replace it with a tree plantation, you have just decimated the ability of that land to store carbon. Also, vitamin D, as in deficiency. And the king is dead. Long live Eco Elvis. I want you, I need you, I love you. This is the song that's based on, and, and I just was thinking, huh, that's got three words, and reduce, reuse, recycle is three words. And, and it just, it went from there. I reduce, I reuse, I recycle. This week on Living on Earth. With all my Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Preserving the world's tropical forests holds great promise for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but not all forests are created equal. There are natural forests, which are home to a wide variety of trees, plants, and animal life, and then there are forest plantations where a single type of tree is grown for its commercial value. Scientists are now experimenting with plantations, manipulating and modifying the genes of saplings that grow in these monoculture forests. And that's a problem, says Anne Peterman. She's executive director of the Global Justice Ecology Project. One of the main trees that they're genetically engineering is eucalyptus, um, but they're also genetically engineering poplars and pines. So those three species are pretty much the three main forestry trees that they're genetically engineering. And they're mainly doing it either for pulp and paper, for cellulosic fuel, um, in other words, biofuels made out of trees, or um, for timber, um, in the case of some of the pine. So they're genetically modifying them to enhance some of the traits. Uh, in the case of timber, they want you know straighter trees or less branches, or you know if they could grow two by fours, that would make them very happy. Um, or in the case of paper, they want to actually create trees that have less lignin. Lignin is the structure in a tree that makes it strong, that protects it against insects, disease, fungus, etc., but makes it very hard to make paper or fuel. So if they have low lignin trees, they can more easily process them, they say, into paper or fuel. When you say they, you're talking about companies. Right. I'm talking about the paper industry, the biofuels industry, etc., What's the problem? I mean, they're saying we need to be more sustainable. We need to grow sustainable products, uh, provide for an ever-expanding population, and this is good. Their argument is that this will grow more wood on less land. Less forest will be cut down because we can concentrate the amount of timber that we're growing on a piece of land. But as we've seen with traditional plantations that are already developed all over the world, they do not protect forests they destroy forests. And the reason is because plantations are worth more money than natural forests. They can get more timber out of them, or they can get a specific kind of timber out of them. And in a natural forest, they can't do that. So it's worth more money. So what you're saying is it's a driver of deforestation. They would go in and they would deforest 
a natural rainforest or tropical forest and then plant these plantation forests. Exactly. And you see that in Brazil. They've pretty much decimated the Mata Atlantica forest ecosystem in Brazil to replace them with eucalyptus plantations. Now they're talking about going into the Amazon and replacing parts of the Amazon with eucalyptus plantations. So, yes, uh, tree plantations have been a huge driver of deforestation all over the world. But a tree is a tree is a tree. I mean, if you've cut down a tree and now you're planting genetically modified eucalyptus, in terms of carbon, is there a difference? There is, actually. There's a huge difference. And uh, it's not just, of course, the carbon storage, but the biodiversity, um, you know, the ability of forests to sustain populations, human populations, in a way that plantations can't. But getting back to the carbon issue... Forests in tropical regions store four times the carbon of a tree plantation. So when you destroy a natural forest and replace it with a tree plantation, you have just decimated the ability of that land to store carbon. Clearly, that's going to have impacts on the, on the climate, not to mention the actual act of deforestation itself has huge carbon emissions. Uh, you know, studies have shown that at the very least, 20% of annual carbon emissions come from deforestation, and more recent studies are saying that it's probably a considerably more than that. In Brazil, they are planning to count plantation trees as, as forest. They do in many parts of the world. The UN allows plantations to be considered as forest. It's just it's an incredibly bad definition of forest that the UN uses that allows this to happen, and that desperately needs to be changed. In Brazil, they call tree plantations green deserts because they're so destructive and because they are basically devoid of any other species except the monoculture of that tree. And where on the planet is the number one place where they're planting genetically engineered trees? China at this point. China is the only place in the world where they have commercially released genetically engineered trees at this point. The U.S. is in the process of trying to figure out if they want to, them to be legal here. Brazil is in a similar process. They're moving forward with it. But China is the only place where they actually have commercial plantations. Ann Peterman coordinates work on genetic trees for the Global Forest Coalition and directs the Global Justice Ecology Project. The next time you're shopping for a pair of leather shoes, consider this. It took 2,100 gallons of water to produce them. 2,100 gallons for one pair of shoes. That's the shoe's water footprint. A water footprint is a new way of looking at the economic costs and environmental impacts of water in the everyday things we use. Dirk Kuyper is executive director of the Water Footprint Network in the Netherlands. What this number tells you is basically not only direct use from the tap, but it's also the indirect use that you have through consuming products or producing those products. And you can actually start understanding the amount of water you're shipping around on the world. Let me get my water footprint for some common products, okay? Yeah. How about um, making a hamburger? How much water goes into making a hamburger? Uh, it's about sort of 2.7 2. thousand liters of water that goes in there. That's about uh, what, 630 gallons of water for one hamburger. Yeah. How about um, a glass of beer? A glass of beer is basically 75 liters of water. Well, you're obviously not drinking that physically, uh, but that is the water be that has been used in the production of, for example, the, the, the hops and, and wheat that is uh, being used for brewing the beer. 75 liters, it's about uh, 20 gallons. Yes. So the idea is that like a carbon footprint has a certain impact on the planet, then your water footprint has a similar impact. 
Yeah, the, there's one complicating factor with water is the, the carbon is basically pooled in the atmosphere and water is very locally based. So the impacts of your water footprint are actually quite diverse. So, for example, if you look at water-rich regions like the Amazon area, the impact of your water use there might be far less than, for example, in a water-scarce area in Eastern Africa. So you need to have a very specific measure of the local uh, localized impacts, and that complicates matters. Ah, so when you're talking footprint, you're actually talking impression in an, in a local area. In the end, you will do that. Uh, the question is, uh, at this point, we cannot yet do that. We are developing that, and that's also why we have the Water Footprint Network. We want to develop that methodology further to actually start understanding what the volume that you have in your water footprint is actually having uh, for an impact in a local situation. Yeah, well, the idea of a of water footprint is, is, I understand, becoming more and more popular in the business world. They're actually starting to th- consider how much water they're using and producing the products they produce. You know, in light of their sort of uh, corporate citizenship and stewardship, they basically want to understand how they impact on the world. And there's not only uh, impact on the natural environment, also people. And water is one of the sort of key topics now after climate change because some of the stress on water resources in areas like, for example, Pakistan and, and so on is huge. And, and they need to do something about it uh, because otherwise they might actually run, create not only a reputational risk, but also fiscal risks in terms of uh, having their supply chains falling apart. Well, Mr. Kuiper, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Dirk Kuiper of the Water Footprint Network. About 90% of the water used each year in developing countries goes to agriculture. Crops like cotton are notoriously thirsty, so things made from cotton, say blue jeans, have a large water footprint. How large? The answer from Michael Kabori, vice president at Levi Strauss and Company, might surprise you. It takes 919 gallons of water to produce a pair of our flagship product, which is, as I'm sure you know, Levi's 501s. Those are the ones with uh, the buttons, no zipper. That's correct. 919 gallons for yes, one and pair I, of Yes, and I should explain uh, how we arrived at that figure. A few years ago, what we did was a product life cycle assessment. So from the raw materials, growing the cotton, through manufacturing, distribution, consumer use, and final disposal. So what does that make your water footprint? So what what this means for us, Bruce, is as we looked at the breakdown here, we actually didn't focus on the cotton or the consumer immediately. What we did was we focused on the little less than 6% that we actually control in our manufacturing of the product. And the largest amount of that is is taken up in the industrial laundries around the world that wash the product to get the, the different finishes that you see on the pair of 501s. So we took a look at the quality of that water, and the, the nice thing that's happened is as those laundries have constructed these treatment facilities, what that's enabled them to do is actually, in, in most cases, recycle more of the water. So their actual use of the water has dropped. So in some cases, the laundries are able to recycle 70 to 80% of the water. So as the cost of water um, begins to increase in a number of countries around the world, just because water is becoming more of a scarce commodity, having treatment facilities, having the recycling programs has enabled our suppliers to avoid 
paying increased fees in some cases, both for water and for the disposal or the discharge of the water. And in some of our laundries, they're saving up to $100,000 a year. Water is going to be scarcer still when global warming hits full bloom. What are you planning to do there in the future? Well, so in the future, we're starting to look at the bigger sections of that life cycle, so the cotton and the consumer use. And we've been working with experts as well as others in the industry to understand the water impact of cotton better and what we can do about it. And we know we need to do something. Even if we don't directly buy the cotton, we work with fabric mills that purchase the cotton. So we're trying to figure out what can we do around supporting more sustainable cotton. Well, what can I do? I mean, I'm wearing a pair of your jeans right now. What you can do is wash less. What we've done is begun to change the way we communicate to our consumers about their care of the product. So with what we call our eco product, which is product that's made out of uh, recycled denim or organic cotton, uh, we've changed the label on the product to say to consumers, wash only when necessary in cold water and line dry if possible. It's better for your jeans and it's better for the environment. Well, Mr. Kabori, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Bruce. Michael Kabori is a Vice President of Supply Chain Social and Environmental Sustainability at Levi Strauss. Just ahead, vitamin D, D for deficient. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. There are a few things you should know about vitamin D. First, it's not a vitamin. In the body, it acts like a hormone, and it plays a critical role in making bones strong, beefing up the immune system, and regulating the growth of cells. Not having enough vitamin D may increase your chances of getting certain cancers, osteoporosis, diabetes, even Parkinson's disease. And the Centers for Disease Control says 70% of us don't get enough. Vitamin D is called the sunshine vitamin because without the sun's rays, our skin can't make it. And the darker your skin, the harder it is to get the D you need, which is why African Americans are twice as likely to have insufficient amounts of vitamin D than whites. This much we know. But as Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern found, there's still a lot left to learn about vitamin D. Uh, deep breath in and out. It's a routine checkup at Mattapan Community Health Center in Boston. Samuel Clemens and his doctor, Douglas Beebold, talk about allergies, sleeping problems, a recent asthma attack, and then Dr. Beebold turns to the subject of his patient's vitamin D levels. Below 30 is considered insufficient. Below 20 is considered deficient. And uh, Mr. Clemens was at 8. That's 8 nanograms per milliliter of blood. Dr. Beebold wants to get Clemens' level up to 40, so he has him taking over 7,000 units of vitamin D per day. That's 17 times more than the government recommends for adults. The majority of patients at Mattapan Community Health Center are African American, and 90% of the patients here are vitamin D deficient. In response to emerging research, the clinic routinely tests patients' vitamin D levels. Dr. Beebold tells Clemens, who is African American, why he needs to supplement his vitamin D intake. The supplement is taking the place of the sun. 
oh, if okay. we lived in a place where there was stronger uh, sun, mm -hmm. then you would be able to make it in your skin. Oh, but since oh, wow. we live uh, uh, in an area where the sun is so weak, yeah, uh, and because you have melanin in the skin, it which is, is a potent sunblocker, mm -hmm. we need to replace it okay. uh, with a supplement. Wow, I never heard it put that way. Okay. It's thought that people evolving in equatorial regions, where the sun's UV rays are the strongest, developed more melanin in their skin for protection. Dr. Michael Hollick is an expert on vitamin D at the Boston University School of Medicine. He says in places where the sun's rays are weaker, people with more melanin are at a disadvantage when it comes to getting the vitamin D they need. It's like wearing a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 15, which reduces your ability to make vitamin D in your skin by 99%. And that's why most African Americans are at extremely high risk of vitamin D deficiency. Hollick believes vitamin D deficiency may be associated with the higher rate of cancer among African Americans. Vitamin D helps control cell growth, and that's why we think that it will reduce risk of many deadly cancers like prostate, breast, and colon by as much as 50%. And African Americans are at much higher risk of having these cancers, and we believe that it's in part due to their vitamin D deficiency. In its role as a hormone, vitamin D travels all over our body, delivering messages to activate genes and control cell growth. If a cell turns cancerous, vitamin D delivers the instructions for that cell to self-destruct. Not enough vitamin D, and that cancer cell might keep reproducing. Hollick's research shows that if you're obese, you're twice as likely to be deficient in vitamin D, although researchers don't agree on the mechanism behind this relationship. We're just beginning to understand the science of vitamin D, and the research is sparking some controversy. Many doctors say light-skinned people need 15 minutes of sun each day to get their vitamin D. But dermatologists are concerned that exposure to sunlight may lead to skin cancer. And Dr. Hollick has come under fire for getting 5% of his research funding from a group that represents the indoor tanning industry. There's not a clear consensus on a recommended dose of vitamin D either. Some experts say that adults of all skin colors should take 1,000 units of vitamin D per day, and that some individuals may need more. But the government recommends much less, 200 units of vitamin D per day for newborns to teenagers, 400 for adults, and 600 for people over 70. Dr. Mary Frances Picciano is a senior research scientist in the Office of Dietary Supplements at the National Institutes of Health. We don't have a good history of people taking high doses for long periods of time. So I am very fearful of toxicity with all this enthusiasm, quite frankly. The National Academy of Sciences plans to re-examine recommended vitamin D levels by 2010. Back at Mattapan Community Health Center, a group of Caribbean immigrants sits in the waiting room. By the end of their first winter in Boston, they're just as deficient in vitamin D as the patients who have lived here all their lives. Dr. Azzy Young is the president of Mattapan Community Health Center. Mattapan has some of the most serious health problems in Boston. And once we learn that vitamin D deficiency is uh, a major um, disease for our community, we were very concerned about getting everybody on board, uh, making sure that all of our patients have a sufficient level of vitamin D. But it's not just the patients that are concerned about vitamin D. As an African-American, it's on Dr. Young's mind as well. 
My doctor said to me that uh, we should take your vitamin D level because uh, African Americans are at high risk for being vitamin D deficient. I had a dismal uh, 12. Yeah, my level was 12 nanograms per milliliter. Now Dr. Young takes 3,000 units of vitamin D per day. That's about three times what most vitamin D experts recommend. But her levels were so low, that's what it took to bring them up. I'm over 40, yeah. And do you feel different? I feel wonderful. I can bounce out of a chair. I can walk without any problem. And also, I sleep better. It has made a big difference in my life, and I've, I've been spreading the word in any kind of way we can. Dr. Young is working to raise awareness about vitamin D deficiency nationwide, and research continues on the specific health benefits of vitamin D. But with more evidence that vitamin D deficiency may be associated with diseases like cancer, type 2 diabetes, and Parkinson's, it's clear that people need to take vitamin D supplements. Just how much we need to take is an open research question. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Mattapan, Massachusetts. Herbal remedies have become a huge business as people seek alternative ways to heal and ward off illnesses. But for Anthony Harigi, herbal medicine isn't an alternative. It's a long-standing family tradition. For many generations, my family has passed down the Mexican tradition of growing medicinal herbs to treat and cure everyday ailments. Because I am growing up in the U.S., I'm afraid that my connections to these plants might get lost. It's important to me not just to gain knowledge of these valuable plants, but to share it with people who could benefit from their use. Let's go on a little scavenger hunt with my mom in her garden. This is my mom, admiring her epazote plant. We've used plants like these throughout my childhood. I've been gathering plant samples and taping them into my notebook, writing all I know about each one. Most of what I know of medicinal plants comes from seeing my mom use them. My mom says in her hometown, everyone used herbs anytime someone got sick. She's explaining which illnesses can be treated with herbs. Insomnia, back pains, nausea, headaches. My mom's list of herbal remedies cure all sorts of complaints. It's my work now to continue her tradition. And I'm trying to learn as much as I can about the plants in my region. Let's take a walk through the Santa Monica Mountains with Antonio Solorio. This this plant right here, this tree, I should say, the willow is actually a medicinal tree. And the Native Americans, uh, original to this area, which are known as the Chumash, use this as a medicine. Antonio Solorio is an ethnobotanist and park ranger who has been studying traditional medicinal gardens in East Los Angeles. The reason why I point this uh, willow out, if you look at your aspirin, you have salicylic acid in there. Mm -hmm. And so this is right here, the true aspirin, you know, the original aspirin or the original, you know, medicine for a toothache or a headache, etc. Antonio has a very practical reason for why many families use backyard herbs as medicine. Growing up in East Los, Los Angeles um, in a working poor family. Um, we didn't have a health insurance uh, network. Um, our Kaiser was my mom's backyard. 
High health care costs have many Latino families, like Antonio's, returning to traditional medicine, but certain plant medicines found in their home countries are not available here in the U.S. Not even in, in the local mercados that would cater to you know, a certain uh, cultural group. Also, when you move to an urban area, your culture, um, certain practices you know, are, are getting replaced. Um, and it's kind of part of that whole, um, I guess, process of migrating. Which gives many Latinos no backyard alternative to expensive Western medicine. But some in the community prefer to turn away from medicinal herbs to shake a persistent stereotype. With Latino uh, approaches, sometimes there's this idea of backwardness. Karen Holliday is an anthropologist who spends a lot of time in botanicas, which are part pharmacy, part spiritual center, where many immigrants seek counseling for everything from back pains to bad luck. Immediately, the way that Latinos were portrayed, as well as the botanicas, were uh, superstitious, witchcraft, occult, devil-worshipping, and that's a very narrow way of looking at people. People probably aren't worshipping the devil at botanicas, but some powders and mixtures sold there are known to do more harm than good, like when they contain poisons. One example is a powder called Greta from Mexico that's used to treat indigestion. It's been found by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to have very high levels of lead. And there's another important reason to look beyond medicinal herbs, says Dr. Stephen J. Brown from the AIDS Research Alliance in Los Angeles. Not to say that there won't be some certain interventions that affect the illness, but I think it's important to make a distinction between the disease which the patient has and the illness which people experience. Most cancers, gastric ulcers, which has turned out to be a bacteria, needs to be treated with with antibiotics. Many neurological um, diseases such as Parkinson's or uh, Alzheimer's can only be treated really medically. That leaves room for plant medicine and traditional healing to treat physical symptoms. And more than that, working with my mom in the garden I realize it's also about the spiritual and mental satisfaction that comes from growing a plant and from preparing it. I often prepare my own uh, dandelion coffee, and it's actually the process in which it is made that has that uh, soothing effect. It's supposed to be an excellent tonic for the liver. It's really good for circulation. It calms you down. Here I have some dandelion roots that we ground it, and we we roast it, and then we ground it. And we have, have it right here in my back. Let me get the boiling water ready, put it in my mug, and we can make some dandelion coffee. And now I'm going to have a little sip. For Living on Earth, I'm Anthony Jauregui. Anthony Jauregui's report comes to us from Youth Radio. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Michael Recycle. Faster than a speeding windmill, able to leap stinking garbage dumps in a single bound, crush plastic with his bare hands, Michael Recycle is showing kids how to recycle one rhyme at a time. He's the superhero in a kid's book by Ellie Bethel. We challenge Michael Recycle to a tough test, kid book lover Anna Carton-Smith. The big picture is that there's a town, 
that doesn't know how to recycle or doesn't know how to reuse things or how to not um, pollute everything and stuff. So when this guy comes um, named Michael, he likes to, I guess, help people in recycling. So he tells them how they could help, and then they try to do it, and they accomplish a lot. What age group do you think uh, this is good for? Well, I think it would be really fun for five, six, seven, and probably eight. But, like, doesn't mean that, like, my age or older people might not like it, too. It's just that I think that would be um, a very good age to read this book. Well, let's read something from the book and see, see what it sounds like, okay? Okay. There once was a town called Aberdu Rimey where the garbage was left to rotten and slimy. It never smelled fresh. The air was all hazy, but people did nothing. They got rather lazy. Would you like to live in Aberdu Rimey? Not at first. How come? Because it's all filthy and nobody, everybody litters and it's gross. What do you think of the rhymes? It's, um, I think it's really cool how they rhymed it and it's really like, like smart and how everything fits together. And then something happened that none could exclaim. It wasn't a bird and it wasn't a plane. A green cape crusader soared through the air with a colander hat on top of his hair. I am Micro Recycle, and I have a plan, but I need your help. Everyone to a man. The sky and the river are smelly and brown. Soon 50-foot bugs will take over your town. You've got to recycle. You've got to act soon before all your trash reaches to the moon. Don't you know all about recycling now? I mean, you're nine years old. Yes. Like, you can recycle, like, old food and make it dirt. Isn't that smelly? It's smelly, but it helps. Yeah, how does it help? It helps the dirt and soil and, I guess, the worms, I guess. <laughs> so what do you need a book to tell you about recycling? Well, it's just also fun. So say I was nine-year-old and I didn't know. This would help me a lot. But even if I do know, then it'd still be really fun. Hey, you, do you recycle? Yes. You really do? You don't ever throw away plastic stuff and... Maybe I do sometimes, but I do recycle a lot. Okay, and now let's go all the way back to here. Ah. There you go. Then he crunched a can, he gave them a wink, and vanished from sight before they could blink. So if you should see a green silhouette streaking the skies, please don't get upset. The noise you hear that clung and that thunk... It's just our friend Michael recycling old junk. <laughs> you know what I like about this picture? The guy's like, oh, I think he's singing. He's, no, he's screaming. He's got like his tonsils are hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a brother or sister, younger brother or sister? Yes, I have a brother. Oh, yeah. How old is he? He's six, almost seven. Would you want him to read this? Yeah, I would because then it would show him to recycle and stuff because he doesn't know a lot about it, but still. Do you think, what do you think? Is it important to have books about recycling or you already knew this stuff? I mean, here you are composting. And you well, I, well, I think that this book is important to maybe probably people who don't recycle as much. And it can show them that you should start recycling to make it better for the world. But, like, it reminds me, too, again, to just keep doing that and 
Yeah. Well, Anna, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I did too. Anna Carton Smith lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. The book is Michael Recycled by Ellie Bethel. Coming up, don't read all about it, graffiti in a national monument. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Graffiti is typically found on subway cars and the walls, bridges, and sidewalks of inner cities. But far from urban canyons, you'll also find graffiti in the remote canyons of New Mexico. At Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico, vandals have been desecrating the ancient cliff dwellings. And cleaning up the graffiti has created a conundrum. How to do it in a culturally appropriate way. Jim Williams from public radio station KUNM has our story. Larry Humetua steps out of his old stone building office with a couple of buckets. He's about to head up the canyon trail here in New Mexico's Bandelier National Monument to deal with graffiti park visitors have left on some of the 800-year-old cliff dwellings. We have to bring out our uh, fill material, which consists of a couple of different clays, some red tuff, gray tuff trail sand, tools we call micro-spatulas. Humetawa is on the restoration team for Vanishing Treasures, a National Park Service program that has, since the late 1990s, provided extra funding and expertise to help protect and stabilize ancient archaeological sites and national parks and monuments across the Southwest. The program's been called a last defense against losing sites like these, and there's plenty of defending to do. In the case of Bandelier's graffiti, up to a quarter of the 1,100 ancestral Pueblo sites here have now been vandalized by visitors. Humetua is from Santo Domingo Pueblo, a reservation about 40 miles to the south of here. It's likely his ancestors built these ancient dwellings. You know, it's very important. Um, I do feel that connection, you know. Frijoles Creek runs through a beautiful forest of old ponderosa pine, Douglas fir, and gamble oak along the canyon bottom here in Bandelier. Through the trees on either side, the sun shines on cliff walls that rise hundreds of feet into the air. They're filled with ancestral dwellings used by generations of American Indians. Humetawa glances up at them. Every time I, you know, drive down the hill, you know, it's a special place. And knowing that my ancestors lived here and played here and worked here and made pots and textiles here you know i try to stay positive while i'm working you know basically what we're always told to do you know just stay positive respect the place and the people that lived here on the way up the trail toward the cliffs we pass a sign that states clearly it's illegal to deface cave dwellings yeah i think they need to i don't know put more signs in different languages (laughs) i don't know there's just 
seem to ignore them. Even way down there where we're working at, there's signs, you know, right in front of you. We climb the ladder made out of small logs up into one of the cavates, a round room about eight feet high and 15 feet deep carved into the compressed volcanic ash or tuff of the cliff wall. We probably started, you know, C, ended up all over here. Umetua waves his hand across where someone had carved the name of an old Spanish conquistador, Coronado. In another spot, a visitor had written his own name, Leonardo. That one was difficult to cover because it sprawled across the wall. But if Umetua wasn't pointing at it, no one would ever know it had been there. You, you can tell that Leonardo was up there once, but I don't see new, no new graffiti, so it, it's working. <laughs> That's clearly important to Humetawa because he takes the graffiti personally. To me, it's like coming into my house and carving your name on my wall. You know, that's how I feel that these are disrespectful. I wouldn't go into anybody's house and carve my name into their wall. For the restoration, the process of color and texture matching is meticulous. Tough mixed with trail sand, lime, ionized water, and pigment. The mix and the application have to be rough textured to match the way the walls are naturally eroding. Yeah, you don't want to add too much water because it's just going to to get too watery. And... Humetawa sprays water over the graffiti to moisten the wall so the material will stick to it. The mix is then carefully applied by spatula over the carved graffiti. The graffiti in this cave is so severe before it was treated, it was so severe that there was basically little to no original material left. That's Connor McMahon, Humetawa's restoration partner. This cavate, about 300 feet down the cliff from the other, originally had a black ceiling created by centuries of smoke from burning wood in it. It has over time become a chalkboard of sorts for people to carve their own messages, initials, names, profanity. McMahon says that here, he and Humetua had to break from their traditional method of just covering over individual graffiti markings. As many as four times a year in the hot high desert sun, they have to resoot the whole thing. So basically what we do is we come in here with small pieces of highly resinous wood, essentially fire starters, kindling. We close the cave eight, we come in here with respirate, full respirators, and we light these pieces of wood and re-smoke the entire upper half of the kiva. This room, and many others like it here, were sacred places for generations, and to their descendants, they still are. Their perspective on sites like this are that these sites are still occupied by their ancestors, that life is very cyclical. Lauren Meyer is an architectural conservator with the Vanishing Treasures program at Bandelier. She says the program has consulted with the current Pueblo people in the area, including Larry Humetua, to make sure restoration is done correctly. You know, their ancestors live on in these sites, and these sites, you know, are supposed to erode naturally. It's all about coming from the earth and going back to the earth. And Larry brings that perspective to us, which helps inform our decisions about um, treating these sites. About $25,000 a year is dedicated to treating these sites at Bandelier. Lauren Meyer and other preservation advocates say that's barely enough to continually treat them and educate the public about their cultural history. 
The Banishing Treasures program focuses almost exclusively on Southwest parks, where many ancient cultural sites exist. But other national parks and monuments around the country have little funding for restoration programs. One former parks director called the lack of funding an undeniable crisis in care, and it's sure to affect historical parks around the country for years to come. For Living on Earth, I'm Jim Williams in Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico. National Monument gets its name from Adolf Bandelier, a Swiss archaeologist who studied ancient Pueblo Indian sites. The names we use to describe places and landforms often have origins and meanings that are lost to us now. So from time to time, we turn to the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, to remind us where the terms that define our environment come from. The book was compiled by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney. And today, poet Patty Ann Rogers describes Kiss Tank. Kiss Tank, walking across the hot, dry lands through saltbush and snakeweed and desert sage, the tired travelers long for the sight of a kiss tank, a pool of water left from the last rain and its runoff in a naturally formed rock basin. Ranchers call these pools of water kiss tanks because when such a pool is found, all creatures of the desert, as well as cattle and horses and humans, put their dry lips and thirsty mouths to its water eagerly, with a kind of passion, and they rise refreshed. Such basins filled with the water from snowmelt can also be found in mountainous regions. A basin on top of the Maiden, a sandstone spire near Boulder, Colorado, for instance, contains freshwater shrimp that have evolved to survive the dry seasons. A kiss tank is also called a tinaja, which is Spanish for a big earthen jar. Poet Patty Ann Rogers lives in Colorado. Her definition of kiss tank appears in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guatney. The king is alive, well, and recycled in Kansas City, Missouri. Well, the earth needs your help, baby, can't you see? Cause I'm really screwed up the land, air, and sea. I'll listen up and take a tip from old Greeny. Come on and do the Earth Day rock with me. Well, that's a rock. Eco Elvis, green sequin jumpsuit, sideburns, and shades is Matt Riggs. And this is one of the cuts off his CD, Burning Glow. Well, you thought just recycling would be enough. Well, I'm calling your bluff. Wake up and take a good look at your lifestyle. But changing what you eat, you use and buy. Well, let's ride. Eco Elvis's disc includes a dozen tunes from the King's collection of smash hits, retooled with environmental messages. Matt Riggs has entered the building at the studio of KCUR in Kansas City. Matt, it is a real thrill. Oh, thank you very much for having me, man. <laughs> How'd you come up with the inspiration for Eco Elvis? Uh, Eco Elvis came about 11 years ago. Uh, I was working at a nonprofit group here in Kansas City, Missouri, and we were kicking off a recycling program in an office building. And my coworker friend and I were there. We were basically giving out recycling bins, and it was really, really getting boring. And I was thinking, you know, we really need something to make these things more fun and more exciting and interesting. It was August 16th, the day of Elvis's death. And uh, in walked an Elvis impersonator, and I saw that Elvis impersonator, and it just clicked. And I said, 
that's what we need. We need an eco-Elvis, or back then I was calling myself Green Elvis, but now I'm eco-Elvis. But regardless, that's how it came into being. So from those humble origins, a king was born. That's right. Meat and dairy might taste good to you. You think they're part of a balanced, healthy diet. Well, there are several things that you ought to know that the industry tries to keep quiet. They're full of hormones, poisons, antibiotics, too. Deadly bacteria is just a toxic stew. Can lead to heart disease, bone loss, cancer, too. So viva Las Vegas. Viva. Where do the words come from? Is it hard to make up words to the tunes? Actually, it's, um, well, like with the song, I reduce, I reuse, I recycle. It's kind of a, a phrasing thing. You know, it's like, um, I want you, I need you, I love you. This is the song that's based on, and, and I just was thinking, huh, that's got three words, and reduce, reuse, recycle is three words. And and it just, it went from there. The rest of it kind of wrote itself, as it were. Well, let's listen to a little bit of I reduce, I reuse, and I recycle. All right. I use less energy, buy less stuff. Use less water, yes, it's tough. I walk or bike instead of taking the car. I reduce, I reuse, I recycle with all my heart. I eat only what I need on the food chains where I feed, baby. I reuse. <laughs> Matt, I'm in tears. I reduce, I reuse, I recycle more and more. Hear me talking, baby. Hear me talking. Well, I thought that your your outfit. Uh, what is it made out of? It looks like an Elvis outfit. Well, yeah, I try to kind of strike a balance between ecological principles and and the need for flash. So part of it's recycled, like the belt is uh, recycled. It's an old weight belt turned around, painted green. Uh, then I got bottle caps on there, and then I have pop tabs running up and down the seams of the suit. Without the costume, I'm about 6'3", and with, with between the hair and the heels on my boots, it's, go, it's pushing seven feet. So it can be quite an intimidating character to enter the room. I like the green Hawaiian lay. That adds a very nice touch. Yeah, that classes it up a lot, I think. Since the landfills are filling up and yard waste isn't allowed, a place that you used to waste a lot is now compost hotel. Well, it's more friendly, baby. It's more friendly. It gives that garbage a second line. One of my favorites on the CD is your cover of Heartbreak Hotel. Have you ever visited the compost hotel? <laughs> that's, that's a question I always ask my audiences. <laughs> well, the kitchen staff started recycling the bread and vegetable scraps. Even the paper towels and coffee filters, ladies and gentlemen, can go to that compost bin out back. When you put on the sequined jumpsuit and mm-hmm. the glasses and the whole rest of it, do you morph? Do you become Elvis? I do, strangely enough. I mean, <laughs> I don't actually think that I am Elvis. There are some people out there that think that I am, and that kind of scares me sometimes. But um, I, it's kind of weird. I put that on, and it kind of you feel that the power of Elvis kind of <laughs> – 
come over me and and uh you know the the confidence he has and the showmanship and it's a whole different manner of speaking and acting and i just kind of totally morph into that character while the costume's on so if the king were alive today you you think um he would like it or would he roll over in his grave (laughs) (laughs) i think he would probably like it is my guess you know, he had a lot of problems, but uh, underneath it, he was a, a humanitarian. He was a, a good person. And I think uh, given today's dire environmental search situation, he would probably understand and, you know, say, go for it, man. Well, I want to take it down a, a notch. Let's listen to uh, your version of Can't Help Falling in Love. Okay. But I can't help recycling it all. It's true All creeds say It is wrong to waste That's why I can't help Recycling it all Tiny bits of foil, lids and bottle caps, even post-it notes. I recycle the price tags off my clothes. Yes, I do, darling. (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) I recycle (laughs) the price tags off my clothes. Can be. Matt, it really does have a message. Mm-hmm. When I started doing Eco Elvis, it was more to kind of bring excitement to what I thought were kind of dull events. It doesn't really do much for the cause when people are falling asleep. So I thought, well, Eco Elvis, you know, it's like if the flashy costume doesn't get them, the music will. And if the music doesn't get them, the, the jokes I crack will and the antics will. So, uh, you know, and if that doesn't get them, then the message and the words will get them. So it's kind of like a, you know, four or five-tier punch. If I can't get them one way, I'll get them another. Well, I've always wanted to say this, Matt. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Stop by Graceland sometimes. I'll show you around, baby. Let's go organic. Matt Riggs, a.k.a. Eco Elvis, has left the building, but you can catch a video of the Recycled King at our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. This show was engineered by Dana Chisholm. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.